0: Good evening. My name is Eric Bergloff. I have the pleasure of chairing this Brexit and the Future of British Politics uh, panel. Uh, you may ask why, you know, a Swede who's been um, focusing most of his career on studying emerging economies are, is chairing uh, this this event. And, and you know, my experience is that every time a non-Brit steps into this, debate you get clobbered for sort of questioning the right of self-determination and, and, and so on. So I, I hope that just chairing will not get me into trouble. Uh, I, but I think it, it is worthwhile to also reflect on the fact that this is just not a, a something as, that is of interest to, to Britain. This is something that is a, certainly of interest to Europe, and it's... I think going to change the dynamics in Europe and has already changed the dynamics in Europe. I think considerably, and of course, the, how this plays out in a broader, um, sort of global setting is also quite uh, quite important. What what um, is a bit worrying is that it seems that in many of these debates, global and European debates, the um, the UK has has checked out. I mean, there was no one at the Munich uh, Security Conference which is probably the most important event. No one from the cabinet there. and I, I've been involved myself in some discussions around sort of European development finance architecture and, and the UK checked out of that. So I think there is a it, it's not like these things do, do, don't um, concern um, non-Brits as well. But what I thought we would do tonight um, with this uh, illustrious panel was to Think about you know what you no know, so so Brexit is done, I mean this is um, what uh, the Prime Minister tells us, uh, even though I think just looking at it from the side, it looks like there's quite a lot left to do but but so so be it, we probably will come to that uh, but it's also you know we've we got a very polarized debate, we got to the point where where, where brexit or or issues around brexit was the most. Salient issues in politics, and, and uh, you know, a big question is: Is this going to continue like this, or are we going to see some some kind of of a change in in in, in priorities of, of, of people? Uh, that's going to, I think, be very important for, for the future. And of course, you have this you know very fundamental realignment in, in British politics that we saw in the last election. And the question is: Has that played out, uh, or will we see more of it, or we will perhaps see a, a retraction to, to something um, with, with more balance. So all, all those issues I think we are going to come to tonight. We have a fabulous panel. We have Sir Anthony Selden, who is the um, vice chancellor of Buckingham University, the university that has the highest student satisfaction uh, well, I don't know. It's, um, approval um, of any university in, in the UK, and that is a, a great achievement, I think. He is, of course, also very well known for his biographies of prime ministers. He hasn't done one of the current yet, but but he's thinking of it. I, I, what, I, Boris is thinking of it, or I'm thinking of it. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Boris may be uh, very worried about that prospect, but but uh, but um, so. so uh, we're going to have Anthony going to go first but I also introduce um, uh, Tony Travers I mean, these are two colleagues of mine on the same floor and Tony is just a, a couple of doors away. Tony is uh, the associate dean of the School of Public Policy. He was the one who you know, gave birth to it in a way and was here as, as um, acting dean in, in the very beginning. Of course we know him as, as an expert on British politics at every level, and you know i' never stopped um, wondering uh, wondering about his his uh, immense uh, understanding of british politics and of course, we have uh, Sarah uh, last but not least and, and, and Sarah Hobolt is the um, Sutherland chair in, in um, is it European politics or is it yes. European politics, and she 's part of the professor here in the government department and the European Institute, and you probably come across her um, uh, almost, uh, well, I would say, wide-ranging um, uh, empirical uh, work. So we have
1: a great panel. Sir Anthony, I was going to ask you first. Thanks, thanks, Eric. I mean, it's a real thrill to be here at LSE. I've all my life, <coughs> big Have a deep love of LSE. I'll finish on uh, with just one or two comments about it. But I've got seven things, Eric, to say in the five to seven minutes that you've given me. So, look, all I can do is to uh, just sketch out where we might go with with questions. So I think the debate that we're going to have is going to be more rewarding uh, than uh, listening to long speeches. Um, But, you know, there's a presumption there that Brexit will be over. Um, you know, that, that we're ever going to be uh, through Brexit and that uh, there's a presumption that we won't... Uh, I, I mean, the question, the really real question is how long does Boris have to prove that Brexit... Is going to be everything that he and uh, Tim Congdon and others uh, have uh, said that it's going to be this wonderful future for Britain economically where we're going to achieve astonishing things. How long before the cynicism uh, wakes up uh, and the uh, rebellion amongst those people who were lulled into this sense? Uh, that Brexit is going to bring them untold economic and social as well as political benefits, being free, free. How how marvellous that cry has been throughout history. So, you know, look, I'm I'm an optimist. Um, I believe everything that Boris and uh, uh, the advocates of Brexit have said. Uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, the LSE uh, will be awash not with uh, Dennis uh, or Kira, but milk, uh, storm milk and storm honey. As we all benefit from and luxuriate in uh, the wonderful benefits of of Brexit. The question is Eric, how long does he have to prove that? this is going to be the transformative experience. And he has huge difficulties. I mean, how long can he keep going uh, with uh, a number 10 model that is antagonizing everybody? I mean, huge fun, isn't it, to antagonize the judiciary uh, and the BBC uh, and uh, parliament uh, and the civil service, the, including the treasury and the foreign office, um, but you can't run a government. Uh, I would ask him to pass uh, point to a single model in British history where you can succeed with the hub and poke model that uh, he currently has, and that's even before he gets onto um, this latest advisor that he's brought in. I mean, you can antagonize people, Uh, For a while, you can antagonize people while you have a crisis. But even Churchill uh, in the Second World War, even uh, Lloyd George from December 1916, when he took over the conduct of the First World War, did not run. Uh, this country at the moment of greatest duress um, in uh, that uh, strongly centralized, rebarbative uh, way that he has embarked on his uh, term. And and, you know, it's one thing uh, to win power. It's quite another skill to uh, then uh, retain power and and to govern. It's a very different skill. And you can say, well, we want to be like Donald Trump, uh, but one reason why so many uh, here in this country misunderstand Understood that what Trump could do is because the system is so fundamentally different. Donald Trump can be Donald Trump in America, but Boris Johnson cannot be Donald Trump in the UK and succeed. So I'm not saying he's not going to succeed. Uh, I am saying the big question is how long has he got before uh, a weariness and an anger uh, which will be heightened the more enemies that you make. You can only afford so many Sajid Javids. Um, you can uh, only, uh, as Alistair Campbell found out, you can't uh, become the story for very long without finding uh, that it creates impossible space for the Prime Minister. So that's my, that's my first point. That leaves me about three points, three minutes for, for the next. Uh, a, Labour, well, um, a, a Labour will not and never. Win power from the left. So if it goes for Rebecca Long Bailey um, and it can't find a populist slant to uh, put to wed onto its party, uh, it will not um, uh, win. Um, I'm not saying uh, that I wouldn't want that to happen. I'm not saying that I'm not a member of that. Um, Corbynite tribe myself. I'm just making an observation that that Labour has never won from uh, the left. So Keir Starmer will be worse news for Boris Johnson, Rebecca Long-Bailey. Uh, will be, if it's seeming it's one of those two, will be much better. The UK uh, will almost certainly splinter. Uh, Northern Ireland will unify. Scotland will become independent and probably um, rejoin the EU on very advantageous terms. The only question is when. Um, The EU uh, will not uh, splinter. Uh, the EU will reform. It will take uh, to heart. It will learn the lessons of what went wrong with the EU, always the awkward uh, customer, but the EU will become uh, stronger as uh, the, 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 the requirement to be part of a significant power block with the, U- with the US and with China becomes more and more apparent. Uh, London mayoralty, uh, watch out for Rory Stewart. Rory Stewart could win. He's up against a uh, Labour mayor who has many qualities, but action uh, and decisiveness is not one of them. And Sean Bailey, the Conservative candidate, is not... Uh, the, the sharpest um, uh, <laughs> a candidate who the Conservatives could have put up. So, um, or, or the most striking. So he has a real opportunity on second preferences to in fact win. Um, and that makes me think about the centre. Uh, there could be, if, if, I mean, let's, let's hope, we, who doesn't want Britain to do very well? Who doesn't want all the promises of Brexit to uh, come into uh, being and into existence? But supposing they don't, that does create an opportunity for those people like Chukaramuna who have been talking about a uh, centre uh, ground, a pro-European party in the centre with... Um, the, uh, Corbyn Easters out on the left, run by whoever it's going to be, uh, and the, uh, Brexit, um, uh, lovers out on the right, um, around all the Cummings, uh, 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 the, 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 the Cummings Easters, um, uh, out on the right. It does open up the possibility that was never seriously there in 2019, but might well be there in 2020. Uh, 223, And finally of all, I think what will happen post-Brexit is that we'll realize increasingly that the 20th century obsession uh, with um, quantities, um, uh, with uh, GDP, uh, with economic uh, growth, not to say that they're not important, not to say that exam results aren't important in universities or schools, but I am saying that they're not all important. And somebody who will emerge as a pivotal figure as important as Keynes or Beveridge is sitting, to his acute embarrassment, in the front row of the circle of LSE, Richard Layard, whose views and work on uh, the quality of life, on well-being and happiness, about what it really means to be human, will matter far, far more in the 21st century than ever it did in the 20th. That was six minutes, fifty-nine seconds.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God.
3: I feel I should have given Sir Anthony my um, seven minutes because I would like to have heard a bit more of that, but I'm sure we'll have a chance in the Q&A. So what I'm going to do is uh, just show you uh, a few pictures of how we got to where we are today uh, to try and answer this question of whether or not this is now, as Boris Johnson is saying, you know, the end of Brexit and the end of the Brexit divide, we're all coming happily uh, together. So these were two front pages from uh, the Daily Mirror because, uh, of course, they didn't know which way the referendum was going to go. And so they had two possible options. Uh, of course, we know which one they ended up running, this one. But now, of course, the, the story is, is that where we are now, the sort of project reunite. We're all coming back together and forgetting these past uh, three years of Brexit divisions. Well, to answer that, I'm first going to look at a bit at what these divisions looked like in the public. So I'm moving from Sir so Anthony's sort of thinking about it from the political uh, space to, to thinking about the, the population. And of course, one thing that's striking about Brexit, that this was never a sort of bottom-up movement of excitement about Europe. You know, the Brits didn't care much about Europe until a referendum was called, but then it became, for the last three years, the all-dominant issue in British politics. And it didn't just become a dominant issue, it also became an issue that split split the population down the middle, uh, uh, across partisan lines and down the middle, with a sort of fairly even split, Remainers have focused a lot on that they were sort of at top, but this is just a question in hindsight, do you think it was right, Britain was right or wrong to vote to leave the European Union? And... um, and the population is very evenly split. But what was important about this split, that it wasn't just like any other split on a policy issue. It became the sort of split that also defined people, how they viewed politics, how they viewed the world, and how they viewed each other. And uh, we've done various sort of uh, work, uh, survey works, experiments, and so on. And one thing that we've shown that emerged is this Uh, sort of Remainer and Leaver identities. People started identifying as Remainers and Leavers, and these identities became stronger uh, when people had to say uh, themselves that, actually, sort of traditional political partisan identities. So more people would say they felt like uh, uh, Leavers or Remainers than would say they felt like Conservative supporters or Labour supporters. And people also said they felt these identities more strongly. And this is relevant when we look at British, where we're going now, British politics, because the big question is, is this just going to evaporate overnight? What happened, of course, in uh, the last general election is that the Conservative Party became the party overwhelmingly of Brexiteers. So, you know, 75% of people who saw themselves as Bre- well, even more, but who voted Brexit in 2000, and 16 went to um, the Conservative Party where, of course, Labour did not manage uh, to consolidate uh, the Remain vote at all. Um, and, so, and that was not, of course, just in voter support. If we look at the Conservative Party today and we compare it with 2016 where it was split and, of course, it had prominent levers such as Boris Johnson, but it was a party that advocated Remain. Today it's very much uh, the party of hard Brexit. So, uh, so in a sense, the realignment has alri- already sort of happened. Yeah? If you were a Lever, you would have voted for the Conservatives, although partly because of Labour being so left-wing, many sort of uh, more moderate Remainers still stayed with the Conservative Party, which is how, part, in part, they did so well. Now one thing, this is a kind of confusing graph, but let me just talk you through it. Uh, because one thing that's interesting is that Brexit is not just about Brexit when you think about the Brexit divide. It's also about a more general cultural divide that we know from across Europe, that we know from the US and so on. And if we look at this sort of cross-cutting dimensions of party identities and Brexit identities, what we see is that the parties have very much their sort of house in order when it comes to standard left-right issues. So basically, Labour partisans, whether they're leavers or remainers, agree on issues to do with trade unions, public ownership, government creation, redistribution, and welfare policy. However, when it comes to cultural and identity issues, uh, there's a real split within the party. So basically, for example, if you have a question the death penalty, the real split here is whether or not you were a lever or remainer, much more than whether you're a conservative or partisan. It's the same on immigration, not surprisingly, uh, which was, of course, a big issue in the debate on censorship and foreign aid and so on. So there's going to be a tension whether or not it's labor in government or the conservatives in government that they have to deal with these issues where they ultimately split. You know, even now that we can control immigration, we still have to have an immigration policy where there's going to be a split. Do we want a more open immigration policy that's going going to be good for business, which was always the sort of big conservative thing, or a more culturally conservative immigration policy that might harm business but will... Uh, please a lot of the new conservative voters. So this sort of cultural divide in British politics that was mobilized by Brexit is not going to go away because we talk less about Brexit itself. Of course, there will be a lot of Brexit going on the next year, but the government, of course, has chosen to talk less about it. Some of that is also a generational divide. We know that very well. If we look at who who voted Leave... Uh, it was only 28% of millennials as opposed to uh, 61% of the interwar generation. So, so there's also, uh, and we see that generational divide also in votes for parties. So just to sum up here, Brexit really emerged, and I think for political scientists, surprisingly how it could emerge in such a short space of time as such a powerful division in political identity in the UK to some extent, this has been absorbed by the parties because they realigned. So the Conservatives said, well, how do we deal with that? We deal with that by becoming the party of Brexit, and they did so successfully. As a result, I think now that Brexit is done, in the sense that the decision to leave the European Union, we have now left. Uh, it will become a lot less salient, even though, of course, we are still negotiating uh, uh, with the EU over the next year, and these negotiations will be hugely important for the UK, but nonetheless, you can argue Brexit has happened. The other big important thing is that the drama of the, of the British Parliament, of the House of Commons that we've seen over the last three years, has evaporated now because of the big conservative majority. And I think that's going to make it very difficult for Remainers, even though they might have felt strongly for three years to mobilize around anything. You know, the Labour Party, I think, is keen to sort of pretend that Brexit was the reason they lost the last general election. It wasn't to do with anything else. And so, therefore, they will want to sort of put that in a box and talk about other issues. And there's also no clear pathway for Remainers like there was before we left the EU to say, you know, no one really has any appetite for sort of rejoin party at this sense. And in that way, uh, as a political force, I think it will lose a lot of its strength. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the underlying Brexit divisions, some of the reasons that meant that this became so salient in such a short amount of time, education, uh, age, geography, and this, culture, this cultural divide, they're still likely to persist in British politics and you know, be a real challenge in society, but also... For the political parties. So I'll end here. Thank you.
4: Okay, well, I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the uh, political issues that we've heard about already. Um, I want to cast this in three phases, really the immediate political impact. Uh, the impact over the next four or five years up to uh, the point where I imagine the next general election will take place and then in the long term. Uh, one or two of these you'll have heard echoes of already or you'll hear echoes from, of now. First thing, um, the most obvious political impact is that the general election and the whole Brexit process leading to it have uh, at this point forced the Labour Party to change its leader, to seek a more attractive leader with more attractive policies. So um, Brexit alone and the general election alone haven't done that, but it is an important moment for Labour, not least of which because by 2024, when the next general election will probably take place, the Conservatives will have been in power for two-thirds of the time since 1945. And for the Labour Party, the choice, it seems to me, at pretty well any point is, you know, well, how, how long do we want the Conservatives to stay in power? And that point, every now and again, the members of the Labour Party think, well, perhaps now's the time for us to be in power and to you know, create a bit of pluralism in politics. And I think we may have, we're, we're heading towards one of those moments, though it might take 10 more years. Second thing, immediately, is that the general election and the Brexit that led to it have recreated an elected majority government, a conservative government. You know, Lord Hailsham famously described this kind of government as an elective dictatorship, albeit he was talking about a Labour government at the time. And... The immense power that such a government has, particularly with a weak opposition, and after all that's just happened, an election force on the idea that this was to reinforce the executive's power over Parliament, um, I think means that this is a most interesting time. Anthony mentioned some of the effects or some of the consequences of that, the attempt further to concentrate in a very centralised... I mean, England's government within the UK is one of the most centralised of any country in the world, way out more than, let's say, Sweden, uh, or indeed Denmark, uh, and it is a very centralised system with power centralised inside number 10, and now being further centralised, taking it from other parts of the core of government. So that's going on. So that's, one of the, that's another consequence, and that will have profound... Impact, some of which Anthony mentioned, on the machinery of government, or at least that's what the government sounds as if it's trying to do. The other issue, I think, that Brexit and some of the values issues that Sarah was just talking about um, are going to create a reorientation, a lot more thought than we've seen for a very long time, about the question of the sort of market economy and the sort of what are popularly called neoliberal, I'm not saying that's my term, but, you know, uh, Uh, policies that successive government from John Major all the way through, or Mrs. Thatcher, all the way through even to Theresa May were seen as to some extent the norm. So we're going to move away from the sort of that take on a pure market and on more deregulatory policies towards uh, something much more interventionist. So those of you with a long memory will will remember Uh, Norman Tebbit's famous remark when he was in government in Mrs Thatcher's government about getting on your bike, about how his father got on his bike to go and look for work. The government is now going to have to take work to people in the left-behind areas. They are now effectively committed to helping areas that have been left behind in the UK, which the Brexit vote, whatever you think about it, has triggered an enormous political change uh, in considering it, you know, railways and roads are going to be built, new skill centres and so on will be opened. further education will get more money as a result of the Brexit vote. That is a big change. But it will mean, I suspect, a more interventionist economy with more in common with uh, George Brown than Gordon Brown. And certainly that the uh, policies espoused in the volume Britannia Unchained, for those of you who study this kind of thing, a number of whose members are now in the cabinet was all about a more liberated, deregulated, free market Britain, more like, you know... Let's not choose our model here, but more like other places than Britain, that's all now going to change. And, in fact, we may see, as a result of Brexit, the need for vastly more intervention than we've seen for many years. So that's immediately. What about the – out in the next five years? Well, personally, I think Labour are likely to move towards a more electable position. It couldn't have been much less electable, it turns out, in the recent general election – I think the other party worthy of mention is the Liberal Democrats, who have slightly tested to um, the extremes how far a centre party can can get in Britain in recent years. And it, the, you know, it doesn't look good. Two-party system, the two-party system in Britain, backed up by the first-past-the-post voting system, looks incredibly robust. If the, if the conditions weren't right in the last year or two for a centre party to form, hard to see how it's going to get easier in the next five to ten years. Beyond that, a lot of what I'm going to say now depends on the Brexit trade deal and the way that feed, of trade deals, I should say, and the way they feed back into the UK economy. Remembering every single trade deal the UK now does, not only with the EU, but with the US and elsewhere, will feed back into the British economy with different impacts geographically from place to place. And that will further make difficult, further uh, challenge this effort to rebalance the economy. I rather agree with Anthony. I think the chances of a a a second Scottish referendum um, leading to uh, Scotland leaving the UK is rather greater than it once was. Uh, The Northern Ireland border border poll idea, similarly, Lord Ashcroft's polling just before the uh, general election suggested there is now a small majority uh, in Northern Ireland, some uh, sort of liberal... um, Democratic union or liberal unionists shift towards thinking Northern Ireland should perhaps now become part of a unified Ireland. So a, a chance that within the next ten, fifteen years, 10 years, uh, that the United Kingdom would simply become England and Wales. And that, of course, if it occurred, if it occurred, would I think um, be an expression of the way the Brexit vote was an unusual Uh, delivery of English political power. It was an English political movement expressing itself. And if England exerts itself within the UK, then more distant parts of the union inevitably are going to feel somewhat cut uh, cut off. So um, I think there is a, a fair chance that if Brexit Uh, trade deals become very complicated and indeed lead to a substantial shift in the UK economy, then we'll see more intervention, potentially nationalisation of parts of the economy, and uh, some national champions created. Then in the longer term, and I shall finish here, um, one I've already referred to, I think the UK is going to stay with two political parties, but looking at what Sarah was saying in her slides, they're going to be different. They're going to consist of different people and different policies to attract different people. They will still resemble in part the the conventional conservative and Labour parties, but you can see the conservative party is going to have to be a little bit less pro-business and a bit more pro-redistribution, to put it at its simplest, and Labour will then have to respond to that. There is the potential of a smaller United Kingdom, which will have to rethink itself very substantially, and going back to what Eric was saying at the very beginning, I think we will see a further reorientation it has been going on since 1945 of UK policymakers away from foreign and defence towards domestic policy. Now that's been going on for decades, but it's going to happen yet, I think, a further step in that direction of a kind that was triggered by the Suez crisis but taking us further again into a more, more Scandinavian version of Britain and a slightly less, uh, well, former British version of Britain. And then, last but not least, um, I, suspect, I suspect eventually, I don't know when that means, there'll be a desire for normality, to get beyond all of this and just get back to... Good old fashioned normal politics. Thank you very much.
0: I'm so glad you didn't do Brexit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or, or Lexit. Um, L- Le- yes, or whatever the LSE equivalent is. Yeah,
0: yeah. no, no, so, so I, I, I thought <laughs> I would just, uh, to, you know, to stimulate the debate, just get your very brief answers to the sort of exam question, or the, I guess there are two questions. One is, I mean, we know that this government has, you know, a very strong control in Parliament. It has a lot of flexibility in what it can do in the short, or over five years. And, and uh, so it could choose either to try to play on this um, issue of, 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 of Brexit or, you know, all the you know, preferences that, that um, you were talking about, Sarah, or it could say we have all this control now, we can actually go back to something which is, you know, this nirvana that you were talking about, we come back to something, uh, normality. <laughs> how, how will they play it? So, Sarah, maybe you start.
3: I mean, so far there's not a lot of indication. I mean, I think there's always been, for people who are maybe more economically moderate, there was always the hope that Boris Johnson, it's a bit like with Trump. Mm, yeah oh once he gets elected then he'll and he gets his big majority then he'll throw all of the sort of Brexiteers, radical Brexiteers out of the cabinet and will return to normality and he'll really go in a Brexit, really go for soft Brexit. He will maybe not call it the single market, but it will be something that's basically akin to the single market. I mean, we'll see that over the next year, but so far there's just no indication of it. If you look at the recent reshuffle, there's no indication of that's the direction he's intended on going. But from a sort of purely Brexit perspective, I think that was sort of always out there. Or in a sense, well, a bigger majority is even better because then he's not dependent and on the sort of ERG types. But that's now the cabinet, that's now the Conservative Party, and I think it would take a lot to to get close to anything of what we thought of as a sort of soft Brexit when this all started back in 2016. I don't see any indication that that's the priorities of where the government wants to end up. I mean, I think, uh, I think the EU would be quite keen on it, uh, but, but at the same time, they're also not going to compromise uh, what they see as their sort of core core values to get there, but I, I just don't see any indication that that's where the, the, he wants to end up. Tony.
4: Well, I get, I, taking that thought, I think it's hard to imagine... Well, sorry, if, it, if the negotiations with the EU and other countries prove very difficult, then the question that's begged is, would the dislocation to the economy... Be an issue that can be turned to political advantage, or would it become a matter of political disadvantage? So, in certain rule books of modern politics, obviously, if uh, the UK doesn't get what it wants out of these trade deals, it would be a way of portraying the British as being, or the UK as being, badly treated by other countries, and that could be a rallying cry for support. It's also possible that the changes to the economy were so profound that people would say, hang on, we didn't vote for this. Uh, you know, Brexit was a bad idea. Now, it could go either way. Anthony, which way do you think it'll go? <laughs> I'm not the chair here, but I don't know. I think
1: it um, could go around in circles. Um, so uh, ask me another question. <laughs> I'm going to leave it now
0: to the, you to ask questions. So we, I think we won't have, be out of questions here. So I'm going to take you in, in groups of three and uh, so start over here.
5: Um, thank you very much. Um, my, my question um, is based on uh, the comments about, the, there was a remark made by one of the panelists about extreme r- remainers and who by implication would feel particularly left out now, whichever way goes. Um, where, if the UK splits up, as I, frankly, I share your views that this may very well happen, um, where, and th- therefore we've got a more English nationalism, where are the losers within the current UK? What's going to happen to them? Um, I'm obviously thinking of the Protestants in Northern Ireland where there's an out-and-out racial sectarian element to all this, but also the unionists in um, Scotland. My hometown um, was recently mentioned on a BBC radio on the Today programme, simply because... Interviews there, very, very depressing, simply because in the independence referendum it's... Decision against independence was like that. And the clear implication of the program was that they would probably go the other way and vote for independence next
1: time. Thank you. Uh, what town was it, not interested? Uh,
5: Inverclyde, Greenock.
1: Right, Inverclyde. Yeah. Okay. Over there.
5: I can't do that one. Uh, please, Raffin, Would you agree that even if Labour chooses Stormer, Rainer, uh, the new leadership would have an enormous uh, mountain decline. They have to regain Scotland to get a majority and they have to avoid losing Wales. And the crucial dates for the new Labour leadership will be the Welsh Assembly elections and the Scottish Parliament elections next year. And I'd like to ask Tony Travis if he could comment on uh, the uh, wild fantasy from Buckingham about the outcome of the London mayoral election. Wouldn't he agree that Rory Stewart's more likely to be selling the big issue from his
2: sleeping <laughs> <laughs> A running
5: City Hall
1: from it. Can I have? Um... You may just eat your words, by the way. Yeah. You
0: yeah. might eat yours. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Thank you. So, so, <laughs>
0: can you take can you... one in the? I phone? often
1: have them.
6: Um, oh. I think it's working. Uh, uh, my question is really. Can, can you suppose... introduce
0: yourself? Sorry, I mean. Uh,
6: it's working. it's working. It's working. I can hear you. Uh, my, question, my question is really... Okay, sorry,
0: um, can, can you introduce yourself? Please?
6: Oh, oh, um, I'm uh, Ben, ben Odofin. I'm just a member of the public who is rather alarmed at the uh, direction that British politics is taking. Um, my question is really, um, I suppose, geared towards Anthony. Um, I'm sure you will agree with me, Anthony, that um, because of our European membership as a, as a nation... our our EU membership has actually cost um, four um, Conservative Prime Ministers their job. Uh, um, You know, Thatcher, Major, um, Cameron and and Theresa May. What happened um, last year at the election was actually quite remarkable because it looks like that curse has switched from the Conservative Party to the Labour Party. And, um, you know, Johnson was able to secure a huge majority on the bogus claim that he's going to get Brexit done. And it was the Labour Party that came across as being the divided party. So uh, my question is, um, how do you account for that uh, remarkable turn of events? And secondly, what does the new Labour leadership need to do to rid itself of this curse?
1: Why don't we start with, with that one and then... The EU got rid of more Tory Prime Ministers than that. Macmillan fell in 1963 primarily because his whole strategy failed when de Gaulle said no to British entry and a significant fact in his unpopularity uh, and failure was he lost the support of of many in his own uh, rank and file. So Europe uh, massively destructive. I think Labour has to land somewhere uh, and by the time of the next general election it will become much clearer whether Brexit is going to be that uh, uh, wonderful vision for a new birth for Britain, uh, in which case it would make sense for the Labour leader to embrace it or if it's going to be, it will become clear long before whether in fact uh, it is uh, going to be uh, a uh, broken Uh, promise, Uh, in which case, again, so I I think that that issue that the the, the, the Labour leader contesting now should go light on that uh, uh, and see uh, what happens, because none of us in this uh, room know whether Brexit is going to be a success for Britain and for all of Britain. We don't know whether it's going to hold the country together or not. We do know that this is the most divisive issue ever in the Conservative Party, which is the most successful political force in any, um, in any uh, democratic country, um, and that it's now the massive dividing issue for Labour. Historically, Labour's divided around two issues, around d- defence and, and nuclear weapons, you know, should, should Britain... Um, ha- have a strong foreign defense policy or not, and, and should it nationalize the commanding heights of the economy. This is completely taken, uh, not completely, but it, but it is, has moved up a, a, at the top of it. Um, so uh, whoever it is will need to be, I think, fleet of foot uh, and charismatic and restore uh, trust. Um, and then just a quick comment on the, uh, the second person. I, I completely agree with what you said about... Um, Uh, about Keir Starmer and about the uh, supreme importance of Wales and Scotland. Uh, Look, and and on Rory Stewart, you you may well be right. I mean, to be honest, you know, none of us know. I would just observe that no one foresaw Donald Trump um, or Macron coming, surging forward so quickly, uh, or indeed uh, the rise and then the fall of Farage or indeed Theresa May's um, uh, all shatteringly bad performance in 2017, or indeed the, the extent of Boris Johnson's success in 2019. So I just think that we are in a more volatile time. I mean, I agree that it looks unlikely as of now that there will be a breakthrough from an independent... I mean, Ken Livingstone did win as an independent in 2000, but it was very different circumstances. So I just say, you know, we just ought to ha- have a slight air of, of caution because for the reasons that Eric was saying, these are such unpredictable times.
0: There were some, there's a question for well, you,
4: Tony? Uh, I'll leave the... Um, th- because the extreme Remainers question, I think Sarah's best place to talk about because of the, the question of how remain politics features in, polit- in British politics moving ahead. I think it's a fascinating issue. It's easier to see how Brexit, pro-Brexit politics lives on than how pro-remain politics lives on, I think. I'll leave you to do with that. One. On the, um, the... It is fascinating. I mean, if, if Scotland becomes de- effectively unwinnable for Labour in any numbers and Wales is getting much worse and more difficult to win in the numbers that used to be true for uh, Labour then, and of course this is before any boundary revisions, which are not going to help Labour much either, um, they are then forced with a question which will further challenge any new leadership of how would Labour win against the Conservatives in England alone? And that's going to require the Labour Party to think very long and hard about the politics of England, other than in large cities and or university cities. And that's, you know, Brexit revealed the need to do that, and a lot more of it will have to happen. And it does make it very hard to see how it happens within five years, however gifted the new leadership were to be. So um, so I think it is, it, it's a massive challenge for uh, Labour and it, you know, takes us back. Mantis referred to it as well. Again, uh, we all have, um, you know, the remarkable ad- flexibility and adaptability of the Conservative Party, which can change its form and shape and everything so regularly to stay in power. Labour doesn't have, doesn't appear to have. Uh, certainly by its success rate, the same kind of thirst for power that allows it to adapt in quite the same way. And on the Rory Stewart question, as we've got there again, I mean, he needs a poll that says he might come second. Mm. That's how it – because it's the way the electoral system works. Um, it's a two, pre, two preference votes where if no, no candidate gets 50 percent of the votes, then – The top two remain in, and then the second preference votes of all the people knocked out are counted. And he'll do well in second preference votes, but he's got to be one of the top two for that to be the case. And the only way for that to be likely to happen, in my view, is by a poll showing that he's doing much better against the Conservatives, against Sean Bailey, than he was in the last poll that took place.
3: I've just... uh... On Labour, whether, you know, they'll ever be in power again or in this decade, I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind, even though it looks like now the Conservatives, of course, are very, very strong, but also voters have become much more volatile in the UK. And the fact that they could win, you know, so-called Labour heartlands also Mm. mean they can lose them again much more easily than was the case in the past. So, so that doesn't mean it's going to be easy or that you look at the leadership candidates now and see an immediate path to that. But it just means that British politics, even though it's still two-party politics, is just more volatile because people are just less attached uh, and socialised into that is my party for life, and I'm never going to change. So, so I think we need to keep that in mind. Politics can just change, and that's also, that also is to Boris Stewart's advantage, I think, uh, in in London. Uh, and in terms of sort of who who are the losers in the UK, one thing that's interesting about referendums compared to elections is, of course, every time there's an election, we have losers, and often in the UK we have more losers than winners because they don't hold a sort of majority of, of the electoral. Uh, vote. But we know if you're a loser in an election, you know there's going to be another election coming around in five years, and then you mobilize around thinking about if you're interested or feel aggrieved winning that one. The difference with, re- with referendums is if you lost, if you feel that you were a loser as a remainder, there's nowhere really to go, no obvious path, no mechanism that you can say, well, I'm going to fight that battle at this point. And that's what makes it, I think, so much. Uh, more difficult, then of course there's different pathways. You can say, well, okay, I'm going to accept it and get on with it and hope for the best or, or you can get sort of quite angry about politics or you can think, okay, you have to work within the parties, again, the Labour Party, but as, but as Anthony said, it's not obvious at this point that it's strategically clever for the Labour Party now to make that their big cause. Um, so so that, I think, makes it just very different from normal cyclical sort of electoral politics.
0: I mean, one thing that. you you all brought up is this higher volatility of politics. What do we know about what explains that greater volatility?
3: I mean, there's sort of very long term, I mean, it's not only a British phenomenon. And the US is a bit different, actually. I mean, there's very strong partisanship. And again, that's one of the reasons for Donald Trump, not the sort of swing voters, but just the fact that Republican partisans overwhelmingly voted for him, even if they didn't necessarily like everything about him, and are going to do the same next time. So that's the US is not the right lens. If you look at European politics, what we've seen over the decades is just people switch a lot more between parties. And that has sort of, I think, much more big sociological Structural Reasons. You used to maybe, the sort of organization in society that made you a labor motor, you're a member of a trade union and you met your future wife at a sort of, you know, labor party ballroom dance. I don't know <laughs> what you can imagine. You know, that sort of thing. So you were sort of born a labor Rave, motor and it was related to, your you know, your very deep sort of roots of social class and so on. These, a lot of these structural conditions are no longer there. And that means that people just don't feel as attached and feel much more ready. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It could be that they're more critical of, of the parties in government and more ready to hold them to account. But that also means that last time, let's face it, it's not just the fact that Brexit was split, you know, the Labour Party was seen uh, split on Brexit. That was not the only reason why the Labour Party did poorly. I mean, they also had a policy platform and a leader that was unpopular with a lot of voters. Uh, and But maybe next time will be different. Who knows? But it's just to say voters are just not... Uh, much more willing to, to take the lend vote and then take it back again.
0: How, how many leaders away are, is the Labour
1: Party from? I,
3: I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sets. sure Sir Anthony will give you a more straight answer. Seven
1: degrees of separation. <laughs> Well, look, you know, I mean, we look, we look back to the past and uh, and Corbyn is not at all unlike Foote and it needed both Neil Kinnock from 83 to 92 and then John Smith, who tragically died in May 94, and then Tony Blair. So, um, you know, and, and it was a less bad defeat in significant ways, 83, than 2019. But, you know... It, it, uh, as Sarah is saying, that voters were, are, are now a lot more volatile. So it could be. There is, it is quite conceivable that Labour will win in the next general election. Maybe 15%, but, but it is quite possible.
4: I mean, there is a position for Labour, if it gets reasonable leadership, to, it doesn't really, it's not going to say, I doubt Labour is going to say it's proposing to, that the UK should rejoin the European Union. So with that out of the way, then attacking and picking holes in every aspect of how Brexit goes along will be quite a useful target, uh, as it does indeed go along. I mean, the
1: scenario is is that, it, that uh, the economy, the, the last quarter of 2019, uh, was flatlining. The economy doesn't work. There's not the money for Boris Johnson's. Um, uh, pet projects. uh, The Red Wall uh, starts becoming disillusioned. The party starts getting cross, as Tony and Sarah were saying. uh, The the right-wing free marketeers start becoming very angry. The ERG start headbanging again and and, and wanting to have more uh, pure Brexit. Um, That uh, number 10 becomes more and more of a bastion, uh, more and more cut off. You know, it could get very, very nasty Uh, indeed. The the Conservative Party uh, could well split uh, in a very unpleasant, uh, vituperative way, which would let in uh, a Labour Party. All the Labour Party is the the, the the key to the Tories' success is absolutely their appetite for power Mm -hmm. and their ability to junk anything at all, as Boris Johnson is... You know, let's remember, Boris Johnson as, as mayor of London was very pro-EU. Boris Johnson will junk anything. What, what they need is that same uh, pragmatism and ability <laughs> to respond, and they can get in at the next time if the Conservatives eat themselves up, which is not impossible.
4: I mean, it's, just to add to that, I mean, it's worth remembering how generally... I mean, I was looking up this over the weekend with the... you know. Jeremy Corbyn's been Labour leader for quite a long time, actually, and Labour does find it much harder to dump leaders than the Conservatives when they feel, uh, well the Conservatives feel the need to move on. And, uh, you know, I think Keir Starmer would get at least one general election if he lost it, and so that takes him up you know up to sort of ten years out, really. So I think if he does win, whoever wins but particularly if he wins, he he'll have a long time as leader.
1: And you don't hold political parties. You don't hold political parties together by fear and command and control. You you hold them together by success in government. That's what holds successful governments together.
0: More audience? I'll go up there now. So, the one with the notepad, first. Yep. Uh, wait for the okay. microphone, please. And please introduce yourself.
7: Yeah, uh, I'm Chris Barrett, speaking for the Economic and Philosophic Science Review. Um, well, I think what's going to happen is that all these various opinions are going to get blown out of the water by the return of the 2008 financial crisis and and catastrophe for the global economic capitalist system. It's, It's already causing mayhem around all the markets of the planet and it's turning all manner of politics in Europe and America and South America towards fascism. And it's in this context that all this talk about the, the wretchedness of the Labour Party, which is just a B team to run capitalism and nothing more than that. It's pure, rotten, reformist, no hope, not a chance in terms of doing anything about capitalism.
0: So, what's that's, your question? That's Sorry. its entire existence.
7: <laughs> so, you need to, what I will ask you to do is to put what you're saying into the context of total global catastrophe for capitalism. and the turn towards fascism and warmongering. Surely even you lot have noticed the (laughs) appalling fascism that's that's spewing out in Germany and in France and in South America like Bolsonaro. But you may also have noticed on your televisions the amazing amounts of revolt that's taking place as people try to rebel against capitalism. And the only thing that's missing is the return of Bolshevik politics <laughs> to take the power and end capitalism.
0: Thank you. So, okay. So, so okay. can I ask... You, there are a lot of people who want to ask questions, so please try to keep them short and ask questions, and not statements. Please, over there.
8: Well, after that diatribe, my name's Nick James. I want to ask people about Scotland. Uh, Boris is not going to give them a vote, During this parliament. If they want independence, I just want to know how they're going to finance it. By the time we get to 2025, it's the first thing they're likely to get a referendum. I want the panel to answer this how are they going to fund the economy when oil is going to be running out? And even if it isn't, with the green agenda, people will be using less and less oil anyway. The ski resorts sort of melted, so there won't be any ski industry. And the fishing industry has been taken over and moved up by the EU, so I just want to know whether they're going to make their money to run their economy, or do they want to be like Greece and bankrupt under the EU, under the burden of the euro? Thank
6: you.
0: So there are a lot of questions packed into that one. (laughs) Okay. Can I – I just would have liked one woman to ask a question. (laughs) But anyway, I'll, I'll go up there. Yeah.
9: signals coming from Brussels uh, are that they, they will require a level playing field. They will not allow a deal similar to Japan or Canada because of geographical proximity. As we speak, David Frost is setting out the UK position, which is that they will not go along with regulatory um, alignment. That means it's quite unlikely we will have no deal effectively, or a very thin deal come December. That means higher costs decrease in living standards, potentially big impact on financial services in London. Let's assume some decline in living standards. We have a prime minister who has no principled anchorage, because it's extremely electoral, as has been pointed out. And we also have a country which is uh, extremely centralized, as Glenn Travers has pointed out, the most in, in Europe. And great and growing um, inequalities between regions, what do you think that Johnson will do in three years' time?
1: Okay, Uh, so. Uh, Uh, I mean, talking from the the friendly fascists on the panel here. um, I, I, would, I think Boris Johnson will probably, three years' time, go off in that scenario and, and write a book uh, and find and get, get a stonking big, well uh, a contract that will pay him a lot more than being uh, prime minister. Um, I um, just qu- quick thoughts. I, I don't myself see that um, uh, the, the America, for example, is undergoing a crisis of capitalism, whereas undoubtedly Boris sorry, Donald Trump, Freudian slip there, Uh, Donald Trump is um, uh, exaggerating. The U.S. economy is strong. Uh, There could be um, another financial crisis. We don't know. Uh, We're saying that uh, it's not just voter volatility, but it's also economic volatility and political volatility, which are coming together at this extraordinary time. That's even before we talk about uh, the COP26 and, and Glasgow, if it is Glasgow, uh, and the whole climate emergency, which is going to cost a lot of extra money uh, if we're to have serious policies to address that uh, issue, which is more important than any other issue that we've discussed. Um, on Scotland, I think the smart money would be for uh, Scotland to rejoin the EU as quickly, as to, 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 um, to, to, to organise its own referendum, uh, if Boris won't, won't let it organise its own referendum which, and if Boris stops it uh, it will drive many undecided into I think voting to leave to quit uh, and then if Scotland rejoins uh, many companies will then want to go north of the border up into Scotland to get the benefits of being part of the EU so I think that is a uh, possible scenario in our very uncertain uh, times probably I'll just leave it uh, there
4: on the subject of Scotland, I mean, as the Brexit uh, referendum showed beyond argument, um, if you say to people you'll be poorer if you'll be you'll be poorer if you vote for this, and people feel that identity matters more than that, they'll vote for identity, and that I think is um, a, a real difficulty. And there's the the failure of the Remain side uh, with Brexit was not to engage emotionally. I mean, it's easy to say this is the benefit of hindsight, but somewhat more emotionally when the, the, the Leave side went for emotion all the way through. And I think the Scots... Uh, I mean, there's a problem for Scott, for the SNP, of course. If they, get, if they have another referendum and don't win it, then there's an existential threat to them. So they need to win it if they do hold it. But uh, as we've said earlier, I think I certainly think it's a greater chance they'll win this time. Uh, as to the, uh, you know, of course we didn't talk about another financial crisis and we didn't talk about other potential catastrophic things that can happen at any point. But I would sort of make the point that in the most recent general election, um, Jeremy Corbyn took, us, took the UK with a major party closer to offering what it sounds to me the kind of... Um, platform you want and didn't do brilliantly well. Now, there may be lots of reasons why that didn't happen, but it was a clearer version of that with the labor machine behind it than we've seen even actually under Michael Foote. And even so, the electorate didn't go for it. And, you know, here we are now. Uh, And then last but not least, um, the three years' time well, the most obvious, it's always safer to assume in three years' time it'll be a bit like this, and certainly as it's this time of the, this side of the next general election. And actually, Boris Johnson's malleability and flexibility and desire to be liked, much remarked upon, means I think he will actually survive three years, one way or another. Uh, big majority, malleability, you know, he'll be here in three years' time, won't he? Yeah.
3: Just on the EU side of things, I mean, I think there's no doubt that these are going to be uh, difficult negotiations. I mean, they were always going to be difficult, and they're more difficult because the British government has started out from, um, you know, moving away, even from the political declaration that was already agreed. We don't know exactly how much of that, of course, is sort of a negotiation tactic uh, and how much is not, but that's going to be difficult. And that means that, you know, you could end up with no agreement on anything. I think the big difference in terms when we talk on no deal compared to the withdrawal agreement is that this time you can have small deals on certain things, whereas last time it was sort of either you got the withdrawal agreement through or you got nothing. This time there could be a sort of very thin trade agreement on goods that really doesn't help Britain that much as a big service economy and they can say, oh, we got something. It's not satisfactory from the British perspective or indeed from the EU perspective, but it won't be the sort of, oh, we didn't get anything. So so that's not... And I think the EU is is going to want to get something on goods if they can, but that doesn't mean there's going to be anything like what would be beneficial for both sets of economies. So so I think it's not only in terms of timing, but also the two parties are quite far apart, and even further apart, I think, than the political declaration that was meant to provide the framework suggests. On Scotland, I mean, one thing that's sort of ironic that in terms of, again, from an EU perspective, I think Brexit has, before Brexit, one issue that an independent Scotland faced was that the EU was not at all keen for Scotland to uh, join because, of course, they are worried about their own successionist movements. And what Brexit has done is that in the EU, when you talk to people in Brussels, they're actually much more open to the idea uh, of Scotland joining uh, than they were before because now it's sort of, well, at least, you know, it's a kind of victory, you know, like the, the British left, but the Scottish <laughs> want to come in, So sorry, the mood music in the EU has changed a lot around Scotland compared to before where they were very you know, where there was a lot of, of pressure, especially, of course, from the from the Spanish, but also from the French, of saying, no, the, it would not be easy for the Scottish to join.
0: More questions? Here. Do you think...
1: Okay. Oh,
0: sorry. Yes, Richard, up. Do you think... Can you introduce... Um,
1: my name is Dr. Keith Postler. Um, do you think... Um, That well,
7: perhaps I'm losing my
1: thought here. That's a European. What effect do you think Brexit will have um, in relation to the UK um, vis-à-vis the European Court of Justice? Is that clear? Yes.
2: Very
0: clear. Very clear. Is embarrassing. OK. Take one back there. Sorry. You have no microphone?
2: Oh. Uh,
9: yes, just slightly shifting the focus, I was wondering, uh, just looking at it from the perspective of the, of the EU, do you think that the EU could have done something to prevent Brexit, whether something different in, in the way that the EU acted that could have shifted the way British politics played out? And thinking about the future, do you think today that EU can do something to prevent future Frexit or Grexit or anything else?
0: Okay. And one question over there.
10: Can you introduce yourself? (laughs) Richard Layard. Uh, Um, I wanted to ask you about local government. Um, Nobody knows what take-back control might have meant when people said it, but uh, I think it's a fair guess that they won't feel they've got more control unless there's more control with local government, Um, which requires two things. First, it requires some money for local government so that they can actually rebuild the social infrastructure that they've had to destroy over the last 10 years. Johnson appears to have ruled that out, because he seems to think that what you can touch is the thing that will move the heart. Um, and physical infrastructure is going to persuade these people that they've got more meaning and control in their life. That seems very unlikely to me. But the other thing I think which could make them feel better is even if they don't get services and so on, if they feel there's more local pride because the local government is actually part their part, And you seem to be thinking about that, but
1: could you tell us where you think that
0: might lead?
1: Who wants to? Well, well, if if no one's hurrying, just let me pick up. I think the EU could have done more. I think that vote 48.1 51.9 was so close. Uh, the, The most important decision in Britain in 100, 150 years and uh, on a referendum which was conducted so badly with so little uh, fair information and truthful information. Um, I um, I think that Tony's point there about passion on the on the Cameron Number 10 side was completely lacking. I was one of several people who was who was saying to them, "Stop trashing the Brexiteers." Uh, it, that was uh, not. It, it was so foolish. Uh, he could easily have won it if he had taken more of the stance that Harold Wilson had done in 1975 and, and been much more of a statesman, much more uh, aware of, of of the whole dignity of, of the views across. Uh, the country. And I think the February 2016 was a really poor decision by Merkel and by others. You know, it was largely optics. Um, You know, these things are about optics, they're about emotions. Very few people actually understand all the details. They're not at all certain that I understand all the details of what they were talking about. And certainly people around the cabinet table didn't uh, either. But optically, it could have been far more, uh, uh, far better finessed So that the EU was seen to be listening to the very significant, 45% was the polling at the time, people who were distressed about the EU and could themselves have said, you know, we do hear this, we do understand it, we do regard the UK as a special case, uh, and that we will be far more considerate of the UK's concerns as we go forward. I mean, it, it need not have happened. Uh, that need not have happened. And we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But we do know how Britain fared from 1973 to 2016. We're not going to rehearse that.
3: Just, uh, just on, on, on following up on that, I mean, one thing, I mean, of course, the sort of thing that I think mm-hmm. a lot in, in the EU are rehearsing now is sort of what should they have given to David Cameron? And I think, I mean, the big issue was, of course, should they have done something on on freedom of movement uh, for the UK? Because that was such a big part of the Leave campaign that was difficult for the Remain side to deal with. So, so that's always, it's obviously a kind of hypothetical question, but I think that's that is something. Uh, in terms of what they are doing now, uh, to, to what I mean, uh, uh, the silver lining I think for Brussels is that what Brexit has done so far—not necessarily forever—is that it has rather boosted support for membership in the remaining EU 27, because it looks it very vividly illustrated uh, that it's a bit of a mess. Uh, trying to leave the EU, and that's by member state that was already very detached, not in the eurozone, not in Schengen, already sort of uh, on the sidelines. Imagine if you have the euro currency and so on. So. But that, I mean, the, and I think that is also one of the reasons, not as a kind of punishment, but I think there is an awareness in the in the negotiating team, that the, Britain cannot be seen to get a very, very good deal that's immediately going to allow them to sort of boost rocket ahead, ahead of the your economies, that that will be potentially damaging to the EU. Uh, so that makes the negotiations more fraught. And at one point, Britain is going to emerge out of this as a model that others can follow, and it's not clear whether that's going to be the kind of deterrent that it is now. Um, And on the ECJ, of course, that's a red line uh, for uh, the British government supposedly now in the negotiation. That's something that the EU is aware of. Uh, The EU, of course, doesn't want to just operate in good faith uh, with the British um, uh, government in terms of, oh, we're going to sort of align. So there will have to be some kind of independent arbiter incorporated in any sort of trade deal. But it it doesn't necessarily have to be the ECJ, even though that would be the preference. of the EU, there is an awareness that you know other solutions can be found. You, you,
0: you sometimes you, you, you sometimes hear this argument that if the EU could give a little bit on the freedom of movement, you know it could. I should have said that turn off the <laughs> mobile phones and and don't forget the hashtag. <laughs> it's a bit late. <laughs> a bit late. But but you uh, no, you you hear often this or not often, but at least you hear it um, sometimes said that, you know, if you could just give on, on freedom of movement, you could actually have a, a relatively easy...
3: Well, I mean, that yes. ship has all yes. sailed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Britain has decided not to be in the custom, like, not, yeah. let it, not single yeah. market, not to be in the customs union. Yeah. Mean, yeah. No, we're talk, I'm talking yeah. about pre-referendum yeah, no, when, when, you know, I think mm. that debate is... Yeah. is, is,
4: is but I, I'll do a local question. Yeah. I mean, the, the question I've always thought was, ask yourself this, do you think the European leaders, including those still in power, who were in power at the time, would have done something differently if they'd known it was going to end like this? Yes. You bet they would. Yeah. And that's the, way of, that's the way of thinking it through. Right. Now, Richard Layard's question. I mean, one of the very few, few things, it seems to me, that Remainers and Brexiteers might well agree on looking forward is that, Whatever you know, the, the very, the many, many, many reasons people voted for Brexit, and the charts we saw earlier that Sarah put up, show some of that. You will get more sensitive uh, delivery of policy outcomes in a way that reflects some of the views that were on those charts. If government is more decentralized, you don't have to believe in the wicked metropolitan elite and all of that to see that objectively, more decisions are made nearer to where people live in somewhat smaller areas in a way that is achieved in every other single European commonwealth, pretty well, country in the world, it would probably lead to better government, full stop. So, um, But the difficulty is that as with many of the promises made about how all these things can now be put right. Some of them are extraordinarily difficult. So I was talking about this uh, at the end of last week. You know, how would, you make, how would one make good the decline of retail in small towns? Because retail's declining, because retail's declining. Not because they're small towns or they're left behind. It's just because retail's declining. So the government set itself up, really, to, you know, rebuild shopping centres in small towns to bring jobs to people who live there, nothing wrong with any of this stuff, and uh, thirdly, to effectively to ameliorate 50 or or 60 years of global economic change as they work out in places and amongst populations who found it harder to, to do well in that world. So I think the government's got a challenge at the national level delivering enough power and resource and thought through policy to deliver that, But would it all be, you know, would you get a a greater relationship between what people want out of politics and um, or what they're currently getting if if more decisions were made locally? Of course. But it will take quite a long time to make good the ten years of austerity to which you refer as well. So, you know, the government starts a long way back, but just one final thing. Luckily for the government, the Conservatives have, re- have, have, in the best traditions of paradox in politics, it is a Conservative government that will now has reaped the electoral benefit of the austerity that the Conservative-led coalition introduced. <laughs> I mean, one thing that strikes you when you
0: look at the UK from from the outside is that there is nothing between the central government and these local authorities, and many of these local authorities, for the kind of reasons that you were alluding to. It's very difficult to to do meaningful policies at that level is there room for something creating something in between I, we have these around the cities but is
4: there you know i have high i mean dominic cummings is on this, the only person i've ever heard of close to the center of government who is so kind of disruptive that he might actually be able to deliver something in this regard because nobody else has managed to do it in 40 50 years that you know we've been looking at these things um because to I think there's a, there's a sort of, in the states that, you know, left, commun- former communist states, lots of uh, nation, your, your world more than mine, lots of capacity building was delivered to them mm. to try to build their systems up. If you look at the way England is governed, and it's not dis- dissimilar in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, there's a sort of implied assumption that you can't devolve power because no level other than the centre mm. can run anything. Yeah. That's an implied way of running England from London. Yeah. And that is a real problem In nothing to do with Brexit though it's linked to Brexit for many years.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the, you know, there are some examples you, uh, you know, mentioned Eastern Europe that what Poland went through for example. Yeah. Poland you know, consolidated a lot of the local authorities and then created much more effective local units
4: and you know, that's one way to go maybe. Chief and Executive, yeah. I was, just one part, I won't dominate this, but I was te- I'm sure you wouldn't mind. Chief Executive of Leeds City Council talking to about this a year or so ago said, You have to remember, here in Leeds, major city in the north of England, successful, you know, we have to get government permission to build a roundabout. Yeah. Yeah. That's how centralised it is. I think you've the
1: question about the European Court. I, no, did, no, she I did, did
3: answer it, sir.
4: She did answer it, actually.
3: Oh, it's my. The best of my ability. <laughs> it's
0: a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a red line apparently. Um, who?
3: I I answered what? it I think.
0: Is there no women have questions here? <laughs> okay, can I up Here, 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 a a minute.
2: Paul McGrail Peace News a question for uh, Professor Travers. Uh, touching slightly on the last question um, you, you, you said this, uh, you mentioned the likelihood that the current government, in order to retain uh, the the loyal the, the votes that were they gained in the midlands and in the northeast and the depressed areas that they would uh, contrary to traditional conservative thinking, they would intervene they would take an invention interventionist approach uh, and put and invest in those areas. Now, you can build, you can build schools and, and perhaps uh, refurbish hospitals, but how can you, in, in this, the current world, how can you create uh, secure, well-paid jobs in those areas uh, if companies are re- so reluctant and considering that it's going to have to be manufacturing... Because you're not going to get the, the startup techs going up into these areas. How are you going to create manufacturing jobs, particularly after, if the if the if the final stage of the negotiations uh, create uh, tariffs and regulations, in terms of exporting to Europe?
0: Can you pass it back back one step?
6: thank you very much Um, uh, my name is Anu I'm from the Constitution Group of the Cabinet Office Um, my question is about uh, going back to Scotland actually and it's um, to do with the fact that say for example now Scotland does get independence um, what I would like to know is what would that impact be on getting Brexit done because the settlement for Scotland is always going to take up a huge portion of the British government's time as well. Uh, so yeah, that's what I would like to know.
0: Okay. Over there.
4: Thank you, um, Guido Rowe. So I would like to ask a slightly different question from what's been asked uh, tonight, um, by looking at you know, foreign policy. So I'd be interested to know what you think the standing of the UK will be in the future, as being mixed um, you know, trade prospects, uh, there's the opportunity of, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. It, do you see Brexit as a, as a boost to UK foreign policy as a sign of independence and opportunity or do you think that it will actually, uh, investors and business will see it as a, um, a weakened economy effectively or a potential um, source of instability in the future? So so if
1: I just pick up that last question then, um, and I very much hope that Britain's standing uh, as a moral force, as well as uh, not just a political power in the world, will rise and and rise. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. We do know what happened um, in the 43 years in between uh, the Britain joining in 1973 and the referendum in 2016, Uh, Britain went in as a sick man of Europe. We've already heard about the Suez Crisis in uh, 1973 and Britain's dismal uh, 1960s on the world stage. Britain in 1973, sick man of Europe. By 2016, Britain was the world's number one soft power. Britain went in as the 12th or 13th biggest economy in the world in 2016, Britain was the fourth or fifth biggest economy. It went in as the slowest growing in the G7. It came out as the quickest growing in the G7. So we could say, why did we put all that at risk? But we've done it. What I hope is that we will carry on um, and on going up and up. And we've been promised that uh, by these people. So I'm with them. I'm sure they're right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want-
4: uh, well, I mean, on the – I mean, if Scotland and or Northern Ireland were to – if there was a – not, we're not predicting these things instantly, but were Scotland and or Northern Ireland to detach from the UK – Uh, I mean, it would be far more difficult with Scotland than with Northern Ireland for all sorts of reasons. But it would add a spectacular further challenge to the UK (laughs) government in addition to the UK leaving the EU, all running in parallel. So, I mean, there is a paradox tied in that, of course, in that, of course, the easier the government can, can, can... give us the impression leaving the EU is, the easier it is for Scotland to say leaving the UK would be. Well, I'll leave you to wrestle with that complication. And then, um, I mean, the Midlands and the North, um, you know, there are decades of economic change that lie behind some of this and some of these values issues that we were looking at earlier on. And, you know, one of the things that it seems to me a government that really, really, really believed that it was going to try and do something, it would think long and hard about further education and skills and investing in those parts of the education system and incentivising people who haven't done so well out of the education system. But that itself is a long-term... It would be a long-term exercise to change everything. I'm not saying it's impossible, but that's where I would look um, uh, early on and for over a long period, actually, to do something. Because companies will go to places where the skilled labor. New companies.
10: You want to?
3: I mean, I think we don't know how it's going to pan out with, uh, with Britain in the world. Um, I think now Britain has suffered from these last three years of of the sort of turmoil, in you know, economically, politically, in terms of how perception of Britain. I think a lot of people, there's a lot of, I think Britain punches above its weight when it comes to sort of the cultural capital around the world compared to its size as an economy and so on. Uh, and of course, people are surprised, you know, you know, I travel around and everyone is asking, you know, what's going on? What's wrong with the, those guys? But that, you know, but that's, you know, going to Hopefully, change, <laughs> but but we just don't know. I mean, a lot of that will come down to. Of course, it offers greater flexibility, but it also means that we have left the biggest economic power, which is the EU. It's the biggest economic bloc at this point, uh, and to sort of go it alone, it offers some flexibility, but there's clearly also some cost to it.
0: One last question. in the very back.
1: There is Patrick Minford. You must get him.
4: Oh, where's Patrick? Hi, it's Jack areas. Newman, University of Leeds. Um, I, I just had a question that comes from Sarah's presentation that seems to suggest there's been a significant realignment of identity around this lever-remain split rather than the
10: traditional party identity. And I was wondering whether that's actually going to last or whether we're just going to go back to arguing about left-right economics If it is going to last, what kind of
6: issues are Brexiteers and Remainers going to be arguing about in the coming years, other than Europe, do you think?
1: We've spent 75 years refighting the last war, so we could spend 75 years refighting Brexit. (laughs) Hey, what a prospect.
0: (coughs) Okay, I give, make an exception.
8: Uh, thank you. My name is George Doughty, and I work in the city for my sins. Um, I just want to say a couple of things. Uh, in relation to, did Europe make a mistake? Um, in my view, when Gordon Brown, without a referendum, decided this country wouldn't join the euro, that was a pretty clear indicator to Europe that we, there was a, a different direction that this country was going on. And I don't think they smelt the coffee then. Um, I agree that Cameron went there, I thought, with perfectly reasonable um, requests, and he was completely dismissed and thrown out. I think that, that sent a very poor message to this, this, this country. Um, with regards to foreign policy, um, actually, the European effort, both on foreign policy and on defence, is to have a centralised foreign policy and, and a centralised European army, um, that, both of those are concepts that I'm not sure that this country could have easily signed up to. I think our diplomatic service has suffered as a result of what's been going on. and There's some high quality people there that I've met who I think will be more than capable of, of representing this country along the moral line um, that Sir Anthony um, said. So I've, I don't. My, my, I know I haven't said a... Um, I haven't... Um, Had
3: a question. Well, I mean,
8: I think the last, <laughs> can, can I
0: turn I, the last one around to a question? Okay,
8: one last thing. On Scotland, um, if you take away independence from the SNP agenda, and you actually look at the way that they're governing the devolved sectors that they've got in Scotland, it's not a pretty sight. <laughs> and, and the reality of life is that the local Scots know what state their education is, they know what state their health service is in, um, they won't be rushing to for a fully devolved um, Scotland, whether it's in or outside the EU. Sorry, that's it.
0: Okay, well, there were four questions there, but, but uh, maybe you want I mean, to... Could
3: I answer the realignment yeah, yeah, question yeah, yeah. that was... Uh, I mean, it's a complete mischaracterization of, of the EU to say that they are on the pathway in any the short term to one European army. Uh, but that's just sort of for information. Uh, I think on the realignment question... Um, I mean, I think that's a good question. I think Brexit will clearly become less salient. And as I was trying to say, I think it's very hard for the Remain side to be, you know, what are they united around? Because it's not immediately obvious that there would be a kind of rejoin identity that will replace it. On the other hand, the sort of some of the underlying cultural divide that is not easily aligned with left-right economic issues and does still split the parties, I think, are going to remain. One of these issues, of course, so when we now have that sovereignty, uh, at the end of the transition period that comes with, for example, designing an immigration policy, you know, how do we want new trade deals, what kind of, you know, let's say immigration do we want in that, how, do, how open borders, how close borders, and all of these issues, you know, that is still going to, to be salient issues even when it's not around Europe. So in that sense I don't think that divide in British politics is going to go away. No, it's the question on Europe, but I don't think it'll be as all-pervasive, uh, and I don't see the sort of political mobilisation in the short term around the sort of Remain side that, that has been there for three years.
1: Anyone else? No, Jim. No, go. No, no, no. Cool. So I'm, could, am I allowed just to ask the audience a quick question? Uh, after you don't have to express a view, but after what you've seen in the last three and a half years are you uh, optimistic that Britain is going to be in a better position because of Brexit? A- and and, and the, the, those who are pessimistic, um, well, I mean, you know, we, we, all, we all have to hope for the best, uh, don't we? And I would just finish with a comment about Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has written um, about... Churchill and the quality I think he most needs to emulate of Churchill is Churchill's ability uh, to bring the country together. Uh, And he will succeed or fail by his ability to hold his government, his party, parliament, uh, and the country together as we go into this most challenging of futures. And we haven't even begun to talk about global warming and the costs of global, we hinted at it, global warming and the AI threat that we're going to be hearing a lot, lot more uh, uh, about and the loss of jobs contingent upon the AI threat. Uh, and if he can bring the country together, then I think that will be good for uh, the country. Uh, I'm not talking about the Conservative Party. Uh, if he doesn't, then I think we are facing a bleak future. I'll stop there. (laughs) That's a good place to end. uh, We end on the bleak future. (laughs) Uh, Or not. Uh, But Richard Layard there is the Lord of Happiness. Um, (laughs) uh, And I think it's worth remembering uh, that he is the William Beveridge of the 21st century.